I don't know who that guy in the Batman shirt was, but all I know is I dress way better than he does. You could, there was one Bible joke in there, and you couldn't really hear it. So here's a good Bible, dad Bible joke for you. Uh, what was Boaz before he got married? Ruthless. Huh? I know, it's painful, isn't it? We should pray and ask God's forgiveness on all of that. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that we can groan together, we can laugh together. Um, we can have some of these tough talks together as we wrap up our sermon series by looking at what your son says about the end times. May we be encouraged, may we be challenged, but may we also be strengthened and be reminded about the glorious return that happens at the end of it all. As my words fall down, we pray that your words would be lifted up and that in the midst of a really tough talk, you would give us eyes to see, minds to understand, and ears to hear what it is that you are calling us to do, so that we would have open hands to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the name Billy Graham. He's arguably the greatest evangelist over the last century, and even beyond that. Sometimes it's hard to imagine life pre-internet, but these numbers I'm about to show you are pre-internet. Billy Graham has preached live, looked in the face of over 200 million people, through his crusades, he has led over 3 million people to a relationship with Jesus. He has been the spiritual advisor to 12 U.S. presidents in a row. He has led crusades in over 185 countries, over 400 in total. And when they finally added TV and radio to his work, he reached an audience of 2.5 billion people. It's safe to say that he had a rather positive impact on the kingdom of God. And as his ministry was beginning, in November of 1948, as his ministry was starting to gain traction, he was sitting in a hotel room with George Beverly Shea, Grady Wilson, Cliff Barrows, and Billy looked them in the eye, and he said something like this, God has brought us to this point. Maybe he's preparing us for something great. We don't know. Let's try to recall all the things that have, hap have been a stumbling block and a hindrance to evangelists in years past, and let's come back together in an hour, talk about it, pray about it, and ask God to guard us from them. They came back in about an hour's time, and all of them had more or less the same list. There were a couple of things that they breezed through quickly, but they had two ideas that they wanted to unpack. We need to be careful how we use our money, and we need to be careful when it comes to sexual immorality. From this, they created what's called the Modesto Manifesto. Good to know these brilliant, God-fearing men had a sense of humor. When it came to personal finances, Billy's salary was decided by a group of people. He never took love offerings at any of his crusades, and the locations were chosen based on love of evangelism and not the size of bank accounts. But while they focused on that, their real focus was on sexual purity. These four men decided and committed to never eat alone with a woman that wasn't their wife. They said whenever they traveled together, they would spend that time in the, same, uh, in the proximity of the same hotel rooms. And even when Billy Graham's peak hit, he asked somebody to go into hotel rooms before him and look around to make sure that he couldn't be caught off unaware. They worked diligently so that moral failure would never take down their ministry. If you follow what's happening in the Christian landscape across North America, over the last year, two megachurch pastors in the States fell to sexual immorality, both highly publicized. You might think there's probably hundreds besides that. Statistics say that there are 2,000 pastors every year 
who lose their ministry because of sexual morality. Why is faithfulness to Jesus so stinking hard? My two boys, three and five, still haven't quite grasped the idea of a weekly rhythm. They know preschool happens a couple times a week. They know soccer happens a couple times a week. They know daddy eventually has a day off and that Sunday church is coming, but they don't know in what order that takes place. And while I usually leave before they wake up, occasionally I don't, and they'll say to me the same question. Daddy, do you have to go to work today? And I'll say, yeah, bud, I, I got to go. To which my five-year-old replies, boring. <laughs> They're not exactly wrong. Many of us wake up, and over the course of about 40 years, we go to our jobs. We work on those same sorts of projects. We respond to the same sorts of emails. We're part of those same sorts of meetings. Occasionally, there's life-altering, thrilling things that take place, but for the most part, it's just faithfully going to work each and every day. Marriage is much the same way. We go on these wonderful vacations. There's times where we have people over to our home and we laugh around the dinner table. But most of marriage, especially if you have young kids, is chauffeuring your kids around, making meals, cleaning, working on the budget, looking forward to whatever's coming next. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to invite uh, open to Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you have a smartphone or a tablet, by all means, download this app. If you're new to church and you're thinking, I don't have a clue how the Bible works, you're not alone. It can be a little bit of a confusing book. Open up to the table of contents, find the book of Mark. Large numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And we are going to tackle 37 verses today in Mark chapter 13. As David mentioned earlier, we're wrapping up our tough talks, and Pastor Mel over the last few weeks has done a marvelous job walking us through challenging topics like finances and marriage and divorce. I think his uh, message on finances was excellent and one of the best of the series. Last week, we looked at a woman who took an incredibly expensive jar of perfume worth over a year's wages, broke it, and poured it out. Today, we wrap up our sermon series by looking at the end times, and this is Mel how Mel introduced me to it. He said, Dave, I'm going on holidays. You're preaching on the end times. And then he ran home, he packed, he drove to the airport, flew 5,000 kilometers to the Maritimes, and I don't know if he's ever coming back. I think it depends on how well this goes. Ready to have fun? Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings... I'm a city boy, born and raised here in Edmonton, and outside of Montreal, I've been in every major city across Canada. And when I first went to Toronto, I was amazed at what that city looked like. I couldn't believe how all the highways intersected and going to and from the airport. I kept looking out the car window going, how on earth did people design this and put this together? It's probably much the same way the disciples felt when they looked at the Temple Mount. This temple isn't small. If you're thinking, oh, this was 2,000 years ago, it was probably just this piddly little thing. It was massive. The temple mount covered over 1.5 million square feet. If you need me to put that into context for you, think about the mall Southgate. Add the three levels of the bay and the old Sears store, and the square footage of that mall combined is just shy of a million square feet. The temple mount is 50% bigger than that. 37 times the size of our church building. The foundation of this temple had gigantic stones. The largest one that we found, who knows if it's the largest existed, was 45 feet long, 10 feet high, and 12 feet thick. 
In other words, if you look at this side of the basketball court, from baseline to baseline, higher than the basketball hoop, and reached out almost to the foul line. This is an architectural masterpiece. The disciple had a right to be impressed, but listen to how Jesus responds in verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The Jews didn't believe this is possible. How could that actually happen? Herod has built us this, and he isn't even a Jew. We're in Jerusalem, one of the strongest cities in the world. We have walls around our city. How could that possibly happen? And it's not the first time the Jews thought this either. 500 years before Jesus was born, they didn't think it was possible. They thought to themselves, we are God's chosen people. We're the Israelites. What could possibly happen? And God, through prophet after prophet after prophet, said, if you continue to disobey, bad things are going to happen. In, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 7, we read this, Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. A declaration like this would probably grab the attention of the disciples. And Jesus was setting them up for a conversation. Verse 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? The Mount of Olives is about one mile away from the Temple Mount. To travel from where this picture was taken to where you see that golden dome would take about half an hour. Where the temple once stood is now an Islamic shrine that you can see in that picture, known as Dome of the Rock. But when the disciples were sitting across from that valley, they would have been looking at the temple when they posed that question. question that many of us are asking 2,000 years later. Jesus, when are you coming back? And what is that going to look like? Ready to get into it? For those of you who enjoy taking notes, we start with this. Waiting for Jesus. This is verses 5 to 8. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Jesus answers that question of when and what. But it's an answer that we don't necessarily like. It's almost like a dad joke. Jesus, when are you coming back? I'll come back when you see me. Thanks, Jesus. That's not helpful. But if you're sitting here this morning thinking, today do we hear? Today do we know when that's going to happen? We don't. This church, any Bible-believing church, will say, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. In fact, speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. But he does give us a hint. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The nations are going to rage against one another. There will be earthquakes and famines, and that's just the beginning of birth pains. On the surface, this not, may not seem like the most compelling of arguments. The very first book of the Bible, less than 15 chapters in, we already run into a famine. We already run into war. But here's what makes it interesting. These events are part of God's plan. 
not an interruption. These are all part of God's plan, not an interruption. Just like birth pains, these events start slow, but increase in intensity. There's something else that I want to point out, something that we can't easily see in our English translations, but stands out prominently in the original language in which Mark was written. And it's the repetition of one particular word, five times, five times in this passage, in verse 2, 5, 9, 23, and 33. We read the Greek word blepo. Now, it's the same transla uh, translator taking the Greek and putting it into English, but look how they translate it those five times. See, watch out, be on your guard. If you have a different translation, perhaps something like the NASB, they do it differently again. They say, see twice, be on guard once and take heed. You might think, Dave, what's the difference? Well, imagine we're at a park together and we're here there with a bunch of our friends and people are playing and we're having a good time. And you'd say to me, Dave, see a football. I might turn around and go, yeah, I guess that's a good throw. But if you said, Dave, watch out, a football, I'd probably duck and cover my head. And if you say, Dave, take heed, the football cometh, <laughs> we are no longer friends. <laughs> if you open your Bibles or your phones and you follow along, you'll see the breakdown. In verses 5 to 8, blepo happens at verse 5. In verses 9 to 13, it happens at the beginning again in verse 9. And then in 14 to 23, it happens at the very end. In other words, it goes like this. Watch out. Explanation. Watch out. Something is happening. Something is happening. Watch out. He is doing this on purpose. Verses 9 to 13. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Verses 5 to 8 are the general events. Verses 9 to 13 are specific events that will happen to the followers of Jesus. And friends, this is what it means. As followers of Jesus, we are no longer spectators. We are part of a global movement. We are deeply invested in Jesus' mission, and we will bear the brunt of persecution and oppression ourselves. The baton has been passed from Jesus to us. We are to expect persecution. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he does tell us what to expect in the meantime, and that brings us to our application. Be faithful to Jesus. In the midst of wars as the nations rage, be faithful to Jesus. In the midst of earthquakes and famines and natural disasters, be faithful to Jesus. In the midst of people betraying you and persecuting you and making your life difficult, be faithful to Jesus. Did you notice how that paragraph ended? Verse 13 in front of you, take another look. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm till the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died and rose again, and that one day he's coming back, be faithful to Jesus. The Apostle Peter 
was crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy of dying the same death as Jesus. It's believed that the apostle Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. James was beheaded at the the hand of King Herod, and Philip was tortured to death. The apostle Paul tells us exactly what he went through for the sake of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 11. I have worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked and he shares all of this for the sake of the gospel. It's not just the apostles who are experiencing that persecution either. In the first century under Christian persecution was a man by the name of Emperor Nero. It wasn't a systematic persecution. If he got angry, he made Christians pay. He would capture Christians, arrest them, throw them in prison, and for his dinner parties, he would wrap them in wax, put them on poles, and light them on fire to light his dinner parties. By no means has persecution slowed down over the years either. This next slide is from Open Doors USA, a site that monitors Christian persecution worldwide and shows the numbers from the 2019 reporting period. Let me break that down to monthly. Every month, on average, 345 Christians are killed for their faith. 105 uh, churches or Christian buildings are burned or attacked, and over 200 Christians on top of the 350 killed are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. There are 2.2 billion Christians worldwide. One out of nine live in intense persecution every single day. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know what to expect. In the face of persecution, be faithful to Jesus. We have people in our church, there are probably some sitting around you right now who are our global mission partners going around the world sharing the good news of Jesus, risking their lives so that the name of Jesus might spread to the ends of the earth. There are people sitting around you right now who have left their home countries for a better life here in Canada. Perhaps it's to escape persecution, perhaps because they know life is better here in Canada. Be faithful to Jesus. I was thinking about this, I thought, what's the worst thing that's happened to me? What's the worst thing that's happened to me when I've talked to people about Jesus? You know what it is? I got punched in high school. And I probably was more a jerk (laughs) than anything. The worst thing that's happened to me is some of my friends make fun of me. And that ain't that bad. So what does faithfulness look like? We'll talk about this a little bit later, but three things. Read your Bible and pray. Find a place to serve and get engaged in community. Seek after Jesus with your whole whole heart, soul, and mind because it only gets worse. 14 to 23. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, there is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect. 
if that were possible. Be on guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. If you're familiar with this passage, you might be saying, oh, Dave, please talk about verse 14. The abomination that causes desolation. You're going to be disappointed. The bottom line is nobody knows. This phrase is found back in the book of Daniel, which was written in the 5th century BC. And for many devout Jews in the time of Jesus, this horrifying act had actually already taken place. The king of Syria, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, had taken over the temple and he showed his triumph over the Israelites and his supposed triumph over the God of the Israelites by taking a pig and sacrificing it on the altar. Something horrifying to the Jews. But then what does Jesus mean by this? We have no idea. The Bible commentator Larry Hurtado says, this expression is taken from the book of Daniel and gives the three places where, which describe great hardship and troubles for Israel, including a final assault upon its religion as part of the end time trials before God's ultimate deliverance. You remember what Jesus says in this passage when something bad happens? What he says is completely counterintuitive. You would think that when an attack comes, when something terrible is happening, everybody would run towards the city, right? That's why Jerusalem is there with its powerful walls and the ability to take on five times the population. That if an army attacks the surrounding villages and all the farmers would flock to Jerusalem, when it's Passover or another big festival is to take place, everybody would come to Jerusalem. But what does Jesus say? When this persecution takes place, Flee, run to the mountains, do not look back, do not even grab a cloak or anything of value, run away. Here's why it's so radically important. It is God who will save us, not an institution. It is God who will save us, not an institution. We must be reminded that it is God who is ultimately in charge of history and evil succumbs to him. He decides what evil is capable of doing. He sets the boundaries. In the midst of incredible difficulty and persecution, we're not to give up as Jesus finishes this section, but he says, be faithful to me. This caution from Jesus is by no means the first time it's found in Scripture either. Way back in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the Israelites, and this is what he says. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Jumping from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, we read this in Revelation 13. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to, full, to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, says, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, Jesus' return, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And so Jesus closes this section on waiting for him with these words, Be on guard. Discern with your mind. Be faithful to Jesus. It's a tough talk. It's a surrendering to God's word, knowing as difficult as it may be to swallow, it is there to teach us, to correct us, and to build us up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
and the faithfulness and commitment to Jesus. We see his beauty, his righteousness, his glory, and all these imposters fade in the background. But we are reminded of the difficulty that lays ahead. And that's why he talks about his return. In those days, says Jesus, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Will you suffer for that ultimate reward? This past week, two dozen basketball players lined up against each other. And this happened. The Toronto Raptors became NBA champions, bringing the Larry O'Brien trophy back north of the border. Do you have any idea of the suffering it took to make that happen? One of the leaders of the team, a guy by the name of Kyle Lowry, was interviewed about three hours after this took place. And the interviewer asked him, can you feel your thumb yet? And he said, no, it's been hours and I still can't move it or feel it. She looked at Kawhi Leonard, the best player on the Raptors, and she said, how are you feeling? And he goes, I hurt all over. In an interview with the head coach, Nick Nurse, one of the questions was asked, how did you prep your team for this? And he said, I wanted to give them days off, and they wouldn't have it. They said, coach, if we want to beat the Warriors, we have to come in, we have to watch film, we have to do whatever we can to be prepared for this. Nick Nurse said, I stayed up way into the night, 1, 2 a.m., to watch film to figure out how do I beat arguably the best team of all time. Looking at your own life, whether at work, at home, or at school, what are you doing? What are the sacrifices you make to succeed in life? For our students right in the front row, you're taking diploma exams this week probably, right? You got to study hard to make sure that's worthwhile. How many of us are sacrificing for our kids over the next couple of months, planning um, holidays, planning vacations, sending our kids to camp, spending a lot of money so that we might sacrifice for our kids? And how many of us over a 30 or 40 year span of working are thinking, the sacrifice I need to make for my organization, for my company, for my business are intense, but I'm willing to do it. I've read a lot about the Graham family. The sacrifices that he put his family through are intensive. He was away from his family for months on end so that people might hear the gospel probably for the first time. He had physical toil traveling around the world in the 60s and the 70s that we can't appreciate here in 2019. It was hard work. And he led three million people to Jesus. The day is coming, whether we are alive or lying on the earth, that Jesus will return and call us home. Earlier in the message, I talked about the Greek word blepo and its repeated use throughout the passage, translated usually watch out or be on guard. Take another look at verse 26 if you have your Bibles in front of you. At that time, it says, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. And you might say, oh, that's that word again, blepo, but it's not. Instead of saying discern with your mind, that word literally means discern with your eyes, see the coming of Jesus. Let me put that into perspective. For the first 20 verses, Jesus is saying, watch out, see, see with your mind. And then he talks about his own coming. And he says, see with your eyes, the glory, the majesty, the radiance of Jesus Christ, the coming King 
with a host of angels blowing trumpets, riding on the clouds. In Psalm 104, we read, he makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. If you're new to church, you may have been here over the last couple of weeks and you hear Mel preach on divorce, you hear Mel preach on money and you think, some good wisdom right there. Whether or not I believe in Jesus, I'm not sure, but that, that makes sense. I see where the pastor is going. I see why the words of Jesus are so powerful. And then a young buck stands up and says, Jesus is going to return on clouds. And you go, but is he? Over and over again in the scriptures, people believe this is going to happen. The Psalms were written 500 years or more before Jesus. They believe it's going to happen. You'll see that CF, that means cross-reference. Acts chapter 1, the disciples are watching Jesus ascend into heaven, and an angel stands beside them and says to the disciples, why are you looking up into the sky? In the same way that Jesus is going into the heavens on the clouds, he is going to return on the clouds. The Apostle Paul himself says the same thing. Jesus is coming back on the clouds with a host of angels blowing trumpets. We don't need to discern with our mind and go, was that it? Jesus is saying, you will see with your eyes the majesty, the beauty, the glory of my triumphant return, and it will be seen throughout all of humanity. Everybody will see what is taking place. The disciples believed this to be true and died because of it. They believed so passionately that they died spreading the good news in the midst of persecution, in the midst of loss of property, in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of painfully going through whatever challenges or trials they faced. They did it for the sake of Jesus because they knew one day Jesus is coming back. And if we're faithful to Jesus, boy, will that glorious return take place. If you have questions, if you're thinking, I want to know more. I'm not sure I'm in but I want to know more. I will be sitting right there at the front. And if you'd rather not people see you come talk to me, I'm going to put my email address on the screen a little bit later. By all means, email me. I would love to talk with you. Because our eternal destiny hangs in the balance. We have a choice. If we believe in Jesus and follow him, we will spend eternity with him, and it will be incredible. But for those who don't follow Jesus, there is a place called hell, and it will be awful. One of my favorite authors, Timothy Keller, says in his sermons regularly, says in his books regularly, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and a horrible fire. And he was interviewed once, and the interviewer said to him, do you actually believe that? And he said, oh, no. And she said, oh, whoosh. He goes, I think it will be significantly worse. But if we believe in Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for us because we didn't live a perfect life. And we follow him, we get to spend eternity with him. No pain, no suffering, no trials, no tears. Jesus is fantastic. Waiting for Jesus, the coming of Jesus. We wrap up with this, preparing for Jesus. Now learn this lesson, he says in verse 28. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. 
You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I don't know about you, but I have trouble waiting for the cable repair guy. They call and they say, we're going to be there between 1 and 3, and I think, no, you won't. You're going to come before 1 o'clock, and I'm not going to be ready. Or you're going to come after 3 o'clock, and I'm going to be angry. My first house that I ever bought, I called the cable repair guy, and I said, hey, come in. I want to set up my TV and internet. And I said, sure, you're going to have to take a day off and be home from 8 till 5. I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I was. I took the day off of work. I was at my house from 8 till 5. Dude never showed up. I think they use this passage in cable training school. I got free cable and internet for a year, so it was worth it. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Will we be faithful to Jesus? Summer is coming around the corner. And if you didn't hear the announcement earlier or you missed out, we're going to be at one service at 10 a.m. for the whole summer. Traditions in the main auditorium, contemporary here, our managing congregation in the fireside room. And sometimes we think to ourselves, there's no way I'll stop being a Christian. And maybe that's true. But Satan doesn't show up to you and say, it's a lie. And you think, you're right, and stop coming to church. But you know what does happen? We go on two weeks of vacation, we don't go to church for a couple weeks. Then we come home and somebody says, hey, do you want to go for a golf game? I got a tea time book for 9 a.m. on Sunday. And you say, sure, that would be great. Then you visit with other friends the next Saturday and you stay up way too late and you think, oh, I'm just going to sleep in. And suddenly a month goes by, you've missed four Sundays and you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, my life's still okay. I haven't fallen apart. Maybe I don't need to come to church. Don't stop coming to church. How do we be faithful to Jesus? First one is this, Bible reading and prayer. About 10 years ago, an extensive study was done by a large church in the States, and to no one's surprise, they found that the number one way for spiritual growth is to read the Bible and to pray. But many of us are sitting here going, great, what does that mean? I don't know how to do that. Pick a time, pick a place, pick a plan. Every week, Pastor Mel and I put this up. If you follow Bible.com slash app, if you download it to your phone or your tablet, you'll notice right on the bottom right it says there's reading plans available. By all means, follow one of those reading plans. Pastor Mel and I, over the last five or so months, have been going through the book of Mark. Read the book of Mark. You'll have our sermons ringing in the back of your mind. It's also one of the easiest gospels to understand. Jump to the book of Acts and then read through the rest of the New Testament. And if you're thinking, what else, Dave? I don't actually know how to read the Bible. Talk with me. My email's right there. I would love to meet with you. I would love to talk to you about what it means to read the Bible and pray and to help you develop a way that you can do that. Second thing, serving. I think summer is a great way to serve at the church. It's not an eight or a 10-month commitment. It's one service. Lisa Wallen, who works with me, she's in charge of first impressions. She's the one who puts all the ushers together, all the greeters together. She would love if you came up and just said, hey, for one Sunday, can I work one of the doors? See what it's like. 
work in kids' ministry. Ask Kelsey or Lisa at eKids Central and say, hey, I know summer day camp is coming up. I hear there's 160 kids that are 12 years and under. I would love to be a part of that. Can I pray? Can I serve in the kitchen? Can I do childcare for the volunteers? How can I serve? You get to meet people. You start connecting with people. And something happens. Not only do serve and community exist as two different things there, they work absolutely together. On Thursday night, my wife and I hosted our youth leaders and thanked them uh, for all the work they've done over the last number of months. And I was sitting with one of the youth leaders at one point, and I said, how's it going? I know you've only been attending our church for a couple of months. And she said, Dave, it's the first time that I've come to a church that I didn't grow up in and felt a sense of belonging. Will you invite people into your homes? Will you invite people out for coffee? Invite people into your home for a barbecue? Include them in what's taking place in your life and say, allow me to show you what Christian community looks like. It's what Jesus has done for us. Invited us into a relationship with us, including us in the family of God. And if you're asking the question, Dave, why should I be so faithful to Jesus when it can be so stinking hard? It's because Jesus is faithful to us. And where we fall short, Jesus says, I have been made perfect for you. I died for your shortcomings. I have been made perfect where you have not been. Believe in him and spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sermon. Thank you for this passage that we walk through. I know it's a tough talk. I know it's difficult. And I know that many of us, most of us in this room have fallen short time and time again. So God, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our shortcomings. Forgive us for when we have not been faithful to you and we should. And thank you for forgiving us and giving us the perfect example of what faithfulness looks like. Please fill us with your spirits that we might be more faithful and show others around us the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. May we use this summer to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.